we would just like to take a moment to warn listeners that this episode will contain content that may be confronting to hear. This episode will contain mentions of rape and sexual assault, mental health and trauma, suicide and suicidal ideation, institutional abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Before we get started, I would just like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yagara people who are the traditional owners of the land on which QUT stands, and I also extend gratitude and peace to the elders past, present and emerging. Hello listeners and welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. My name is Ara and I will be your host for this episode. Today we are joined by the lovely Miss Jules Thompson, advocate and founder of Broken Ballerina Inc., which is an organisation that works in the area of domestic and family violence. So thank you for joining us today, Jules. Thank you for having me, Ari. Okay, so let's get straight into it. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started working in this particular area? Well, I was born into domestic violence, so for me it's a very personal thing. So when we decided, my husband and I, to start Broken Ballerina, it came from seeing a gap in the services in our town, Mackay, and having fallen through those gaps with my two children when we fled domestic violence in 2012, we saw a need to do things differently to what others do them. So you're very driven by your um, personal experiences and taking that action. Do you mind if I ask what have your experiences been like with those services, like for domestic family violence and mental health services? To be quite honest with you, they've been not so good. Mm -hmm. So in 2012, when I took my two little boys, who've both got autism and ADHD, that's stressful in itself, but to then flee domestic violence and not have the support that we could have had, in particular with the mental health system, public mental health system, that really has pushed me in this direction. Mm. So around five months after fleeing domestic violence, going to refuge, getting out of refuge and getting the children and I into our own rental property, I had a breakdown and that breakdown was a doozy. It was from a lifetime of trauma from my family unit right through to marrying two abusive husbands and then the realisation that none of it had been normal because I had grown up and gone through these relationships thinking that 
it was normal. It was a normal part of life. So Ooh. my second husband in particular liked to rape me and he didn't care that I was asleep, medicated, and my second son was actually conceived as a resulting rape. So mm. I'm not surprised I had a breakdown. So when mm. I did go to hospital, it was involuntary. I didn't want to be there. They actually tricked me to go from emergency to ward two and four security guards escorted the nurse and I. I wasn't aggressive. I was crying. I'd lost my children. They'd been handed back to our abuser. And to say that I was treated as a lesser human being is an understatement. It's really unfortunate to hear that you went through that when you were so, so vulnerable. So I can't, yeah, I can't imagine how difficult that would have been. Sorry. No, it's it's a normal yeah. response. That's why I do what I do, Ari, yeah. because I've advocated for people. Mm. I advocate for people. I'm the voice for people who can't use theirs. Mm. And I would like to see, in particular, the public mental health system change. Oh, absolutely. It definitely needs... Um... A lot of catching up to do. Because I think when people have experienced trauma, they can present in a certain way mm. that is too easy for psychiatrists, social workers, mental health nurses to label as delusional, bipolar, borderline personality. Mm. Um, look, I was drugged with medications that I shouldn't have had put in my body. Mm. Um, they would make me stand there. We'd all have to stand in the line at pill time and stick at our tongue and they'd look in our mouths to make sure we'd taken our pills. And the pills I was given were so strong that I couldn't walk in a straight line. I had to hang on to the wooden railing on the corridor, like on the ward. Mm. And I looked at a nurse one day and I said, I feel drugged. And she just looked at me and went, that's because you are, Julia, with this smirk on her face. There was definitely no empathy, compassion, understanding, and there was certainly no hearing what I was trying to tell them. Yes, it's one of those areas that you kind of want to hope that we've made so much advancement since you know the early mental asylums, but then you hear and you know I as well have had some negative personal experience with it as well. Just your yeah that feeling that you're just a body there and not, yeah. not being heard. It's like as you explained, you had so much going on that it's kind of understandable that you would break down. But then to be just treated like you know, you're a dangerous figure that. You know, a woman meaning four bodyguards, like. Yeah, I remember looking up and going, is this really necessary? Mm. Like these big guys. And I just laughed, like out mm. loud, at the irony of it all. Like, I'm this 50 kilo ringing wet woman who's mm. broken, crying. I've lost my children. I know they're going to get hurt again because yeah. they're back with him. And they have been diagnosed with PTSD, by the way. And the system failed them too because I kept saying to the mental health team, you need to get child safety to get my children out of there. They're not safe. And um, I'll never forget one day he brought them in so I could see the children. And um, one of the nurses said to me something like, what a lovely man he is. Oh. And I just <laughs> looked at her and I said, he's a rapist. He's not a lovely man. I, we escaped him. Mm. And she dismissed my comments. 
Because, of course, you're the one in the ward, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like none of them have a voice in there. Yeah. They were writing, um, the patients were writing letters of complaints and putting mm. them in the box on the wall and the nurses laughed about it. It was, I kept going to the front desk when I finally was allowed after two weeks to go for a 15-minute walk mm. and demanded to see the CEO twice. Well, my nurse found out about that the second time and she threatened me and said, you'll end up in PQ oh, if you do that again. So I wasn't game to say anything mm. else because I'd heard stories about PQ and there's no way was I going there. No, no. Wow, so just hearing about all of that, completely understand why you enter this area of social work, basically, through yeah. that advocacy. So, you know, it's often overlooked, you know, that lived experience and using that to fuel the passion to become an advocate for this area. So, you know, how have those experiences been for you as an advocate, basically, to be that voice? Oh, it's empowering. It's, it's actually, I've held people accountable. I've actually told them how it is mm. and that they need to start listening to these people. They actually need to start opening their ears mm. and act with less judgment. Oh, absolutely. I've spoken <laughs> in rooms with police, child safety workers, mental health workers, people from all across the scope and shared my experiences with the hope that even if I change one person's attitude towards how they mm. deal with someone in distress, then I've achieved something positive absolutely. for someone. Absolutely. You know? Some, sometimes that's all it takes, sort of a domino effect. You know, you never know if that person and then sort of pass it on. You know, they go on to change someone else's using what you spoke to them about as the core. Yeah, yeah. And look, even at the end of my six-week stay at the hospital, there was only one doctor, psychiatrist, that acknowledged. I I could have hugged him the day he Mm. acknowledged. He looked at me and said... I'm surprised you lasted this long before you had a breakdown with the trauma that you've been through. He's the only one there that actually acknowledged what I'd been through and that it was actually just a breakdown. Mm. It wasn't any of these other things that I'd been told or labelled with Mm. or anything. And, And I just... You know, add to they <laughs> they got the public trustees to take over my financial affairs because I'd gone in there with nothing. I'd, I'd literally, my breakdown, I threw everything I owned in a skip bin where the boys and I lived. I cut my driver's licence up because it had my ex-husband's surname on it. Yeah. I didn't want any association with him. It was so traumatic what he'd done to me. Mm. And so... I had become friends with one of the patients and I got to know her dad, really, really nice people, and I trusted them. So I transferred $800 out of my account into her dad's account Mm. because I needed toiletries. I had no underwear when I went in there. Mm. I'd slept in the rain the night before, so I was soaked from the waist down. I'd taken my jeans and underwear off and put them in the washing machine and I was waiting for them to wash so I could dry them. So I had a sheet wrapped around my waist when I got to hospital and I had a red-checked shirt and a singlet underneath. That's all I had. And this nurse gave me these stained old jog pants, white ones. I wore them without underwear for, I think, two weeks. I had no bra. 
And they knew this and this particular young patient said, you don't have any underwear or anything, do you? And I said, I've got nothing. Mm. And so she gave me some of her stuff. She gave me some really nice stuff actually and then when some money came into my account, I transferred that over to her dad and I gave her a list. Well, my nurse found out about my list and what I'd done. They deemed it as reckless spending and next thing I'm in front of a lawyer and the public trustees have taken over. Like the public trustee, lawyer, the whole lot. Mm. They put an order on me for two years and um, to rub salt into my wounds, they wouldn't sign Centrelink paperwork so I could get any money because I'd helped a patient in her wheelchair and this nurse said to me, I'm not signing that paperwork. You're well enough to work when you get out of here. Wow. So I had no money, (laughs) Mm. nothing, and I had to be nice to my ex-husband so I could get supplies, so I could get what I needed. That's That's how bad it was. Like, I actually don't believe too much has changed from then because Mm. I hear reports about our public mental health Mm. and how people are treated. And I've seen former client of ours, how they treated her. It was absolutely appalling. Mental health is still one... It's it's so strange, like... We talk about it, but it still seems so taboo, especially oh, it especially if it's a case of, you know, talking about going into a psych ward and then it's, you're almost... Oh, you're like, labelled. Yeah. You're, you're mm. crazy. Yeah. Like, you are crazy. And what I am seeing is perpetrators of violence use that against the victims in the system to get full custody mm. of the children. Yeah. Like, literally, my ex-husband loved the fact that I had been put in a psych ward. Uh, he loved it. He, you're never getting the kids back. You're crazy. And, of course, they would have taken his word over yours yeah. because of that stigma. I nearly suicided while I was in there. I, I contemplated, because when I was put in the extended treatment um, section, you could actually get out really easily. You could jump the fence, and yeah. many did. And, they, <laughs> Can't and, blame them. and the nurses would come and say, have you seen such and such? No, I oh, will have to get police onto them. Like, mm. I was threatened, if you leave here, police will come and get you, and you'll be brought back. When you get out, if you don't attend your psych visits, and they had a like a mental health worker come and visit me, mm. if I didn't attend all those things, then they'd put me straight back in. Like, that was just terrifying in itself. Oh, absolutely. That, just that constant threat hanging over. Because, of course, you don't you don't want to go back there. Oh, God, no. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Again, just hearing all of that, you can just visually see that's just further gasoline to the fire that just prompted you to go, like, um, yeah, no, I'm going to be a voice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be a loud voice. Mental health... The system is still archaic. Oh, absolutely. A bit like the judicial system. It's still <laughs> <Yeah>. archaic. <laughs> it's got a long way to go. And, and what I'm noticing with the work that Pete and I do in the community is the judicial system, mental health system, are just so many years. They're, they're just so in the past. Oh, absolutely. In so many ways. Yeah. And that's why people are dying. People mm. are suiciding. People are losing their children Mm. and getting further traumatised because the system is actually enabling perpetrators of violence to use the system against their victims so easily. So 
obviously this has all led you to founding uh, Broken Ballerina, which I've got to ask a bit more, where did, where did the name come from? Oh, <laughs> I actually was born and bred in Brisbane mm-hmm. in 1974. And when I was five, I started doing ballet dancing, mm-hmm. tap, jazz as well. But I did my junior level, which took me seven years. So I'd train really hard to do my exam every year for the Royal Academy of Dance exam. Oh, wow. So that streaked a lot of um, discipline. And so fast forward to after getting out of hospital and reuniting with my now husband, Pete, who I've known since I was 16, (laughs) um, I decided to write a book about Mm. my life to help others. Mm. And it was in a Kenworth going down the middle of Australia that... I looked at Pete and said, I know what I'm calling my book, Broken Ballerina. (laughs) And that was it. It was literally, it just came out of nowhere. It was just one of those profound moments where I knew my journey had begun. Mm. I didn't know where it was going to take me, but it's ended up creating this amazing charity where Mm. we help people. Absolutely. Well, I'd actually like to, um, if you don't mind explaining a bit more about what Broken Ballerina does for our listeners. Yes, well, we're a very small charity. We're not government funded. We bake cupcakes, caramel sauce. My husband makes that. Um, We have merchandise Mm. and we fundraise once a month at the local Mount Pleasant Shopping Centre and we rely on community donations so that we can help survivors of domestic violence financially if they need food if we need to buy them plane tickets Mm. to one-way plane tickets to get them we've flown people to Melbourne Tassie uh, Brisbane we've reunited a teenage daughter with her mum flew her from Cairns to Townsville one way because her father was abusing her and she had to be back with her mum so we paid for it we've paid for car repairs, uh, rego, whatever they need at the time, counselling. You know, we have a counsellor that goes to their home so they don't have to worry about walking into a strange building. Mm. Um, She's a qualified trauma counsellor and um, we fund that. So, oh, Christmas time, the mums and dads, we do have dads that we've helped they don't have to worry about Christmas presents. Mm. Back to school, we, they don't have to worry about that. We've got all of that covered for them. Wow, so you really help to ease the financial, which tends to be the one of the biggest uh, first stepping stones yeah. after getting out of that situation. Yeah, we've even fully furnished um, housing properties because housing, that's mm. another area that needs to be addressed um, oh, yeah. for another time, <laughs> but... I don't know how these organisations that are funded by the government for millions, they get millions of dollars, some of these places. Uh, Women get out of a refuge with children and we've had calls, oh, I'm getting out of refuge because I've got a a housing property but it's not furnished. So Pete and I within two days have fully furnished properties, not just one. And we just go that extra mile. We don't tick and flick boxes because some of the requests are very challenging, Mm. to be honest, Ari. Mm. But we're very mindful of where their heads are at and their situations in that moment Mm. and go out of our way to to ease that pressure for them. 
and we continue on their journeys with them. Some go off on their way and then others we're still supporting two, three years down the track. Wow. That's that's certainly an area that, again, as as you mentioned, you know, it's that after leaving period that they're so susceptible because... They could be real. It could be in that vulnerable state. It's too difficult. I'm better off going where you know. I know the cycle basically. Yes. So you're helping them to to break out of that. It's like no, you've got the support. You know, we can help you and your children get back oh, on your feet. That's it's so important. Mm. If people had a safe place to go, mm-hmm. I mean, we're in a huge debacle. Our country at the moment with the housing crisis, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The government can spend, you know, millions or billions on sporting things and whatever. We need safe havens and housing Mm. so that these vulnerable people have got somewhere safe to go because the reality is there's mums, dads and kids living in cars. Yeah. And that's not okay. It's all relevant to domestic violence. It Mm. really is because some situations are so dangerous that they're safer living in a car than they are being there. And it's a sad reality when they feel safer basically on the street than being in a house. Yeah, but then the sad part about that is child safety gets involved then and mm-hmm. then the children are quite often removed and at times handed back to the perpetrators. So there's a lot needs to be done. Yeah. Again, it seems to be forcing survivors and or victims into a doomed-if-you-do, doomed-if-you-don't situation and that's completely unfair on them Mm. so Mm. you know hearing that you know even though as you said it's it's small but it's still making its own difference what ways have you actually approached uh people with authority you know if there's politicians that you've approached to raise more awareness how have you gone about that We've spoken to more than one in power and one we're actually really good friends with and she is aiming to make some really positive changes, put it that way. Mm. I think some of them are very naive. They have no clue. One I spoke to recently, I'm like, really, you need to know these things. If you're in a position of power in this country, you need to see the realities of what's happening in our town, Mm. in our country, to our people and see why Broken Ballerina is working so tirelessly in Mm. her community. I think a lot of them are happy to get photos and selfies when it's election time coming up and Mm. like to be seen to be doing the the right things in the community. But they need to go and visit the mental health wards and talk to the patients. They need to go and visit the refuges Mm. and actually have honest conversations with people's experiences. Mm. So they actually got to put faces to the situation, not just the numbers and statistics that they get handed. It's yeah. You actually having that one-on-one see the faces of the people that are going through all of this. Yeah. So yeah. Sit down and hear them. Absolutely. So you did bring up um, ways that Brick and Ballerina had and the way that they support people, especially uh, financially and in that very vulnerable period afterwards, housing, you know, getting comfort. Oh, what? court support too. We do that. Yeah, I was going to bring up um, one thing, you know, as I was reading more into Broken Ballerina that really caught my interest was that court support because, again, that's another, as you brought up before, the court system is just really needs to catch up. So how does that support work for people? I will meet a client. Sometimes it's a a high-risk client, so I'll have police contact me. Mm -hmm. 
and I will meet them at the courthouse and escort them into the safe room. Mm -hmm. And I don't leave their side until the end of the day. And I take them to their car and make Mm. sure they're safe because they're still at risk walking into the courthouse. You know, they still cop it in the courthouse. The perpetrators often take their cheerleading squad with them and mm. I've had to, I've actually gone out and got security to remove them from outside the door because they're taunting them. I don't muck around. I don't take their nonsense and I support. I take them to the toilet even because I take it from a personal approach. I get them lunch, I get mm-hmm. them drinks, you know, I look after them. So Again, that's a very consistent thing I'm hearing with how you approach all of this and how Broken Ballerina approaches it. It's you really look at the individual, you know, mm. they're, they're a person, they've got their own needs and you're doing whatever you can to reach those needs. Yes. You know, rather than, again, as you brought up before, them being just another box to tick or yeah. just another, another job, basically. That's where Pete and I go, yep, we can help with this. You know, we get book lists donated from Officeworks and we're on to our second one in the last three weeks, we had someone reach out today. It's like they've fled DV, need school supplies, you know, even mums that don't have food because they've fled, they've got no money, mm. he's been financially controlling. Mm. Uh, we'll give them two, $300 to do a decent food shop. Mm. Do you also um, help them when it comes to Centrelink because that's an entire maze to navigate in itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just actually um, helped an elderly lady get on benefits. She's She was in a DV situation mm. and taking care of a child who wasn't even blood-related but had been his guardian since his mother passed away. And uh, we actually helped her navigate that system and she got a really good back pay and she she cried. Oh. She she rang me and she was just, she's been supporting this teenager on, on the mm. pension oh, and wow. her son is very abusive to her and to watch the relief on her face mm. um, in Centrelink, just being able to sit there and hold her hand, so to speak, and mm. reassure her and guide her what she'd need and help her answer those questions because she had never had to apply for this particular payment before in her life. Mm. So I was there able to help her and the Centrelink worker was so good. She had that money in the account, I think, within two days. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's... Yeah, she prioritised it. Well, it's always it's also good when you get someone who's empathetic to the situation. So I find Centrelink are because I've actually helped, I think, three women now help them ease the process of what they're going through. Write stat decks for them to say yes, I know A, and I know that she's had the child in her care for B, and just like I said, going that extra mile, going above and beyond mm. just answering a question, oh, no, I can't help you. If mm. everyone did that in, that's what the problem is. Yeah, it's that <laughs> very black and white. Yeah. Yeah, no, this yeah. is what it is. It's because I mean, people aren't so simple. No. <laughs> so. No, in every single case, Pete and I look at individually. Mm. You know, 
No, that's, as I said before, it's really good to hear that because, you know, I like your little tick and flick saying. (laughs) (laughs) I actually said that I was a part of a, um, it was called a hypothetical the other couple of weeks ago at the MEC and there were different services from lawyers to child safety to police Mm -hmm. and they had to do scenarios based on come up with solutions about my life, but they didn't know that Anna was me, was Jules. So all day they were working on what would you have done in this situation? What would you have done in that situation? And at the end I walked in and everyone in the room was asked what they thought happened to Anna and everyone said she's dead. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. And I walked in and uh, they introduced me and I actually got to say to everyone in the room, And there was a couple of organisations there that really needed to hear what I had to say. Mm. And I said, there's too many ticks and flicks in this town. (laughs) Too many people tick and flick. Yeah, well, we actually um, helped a lady, a service in Ellie Beach reached out to us and um, a client of theirs had got out of refuge Mm. and um, she's got a little boy Mm -hmm. And she was determined to secure a job in real estate. Oh, wow. But we paid $800 for this. I think it was 880 actually. It was GS, good old GST. Mm-hmm. We paid for this lady to do a real estate course, and she's now in real estate. She got her dream job. Oh, wow. And we actually had the pleasure of meeting her when I was a guest speaker at their candlelighting ceremony recently. So mm. she could not thank us enough for what we did to help her because that's changed her whole course of life. Mm. Wow. And we, we that's our motto. We change lives and save lives. We've actually had people acknowledge that if it wasn't for what we've done for them, they would have would not be here. Mm. They would have given up. It's that's profound. It is very, and it, it's a sad indictment that they feel that if it wasn't for your reaching out and your helping, that's sad. Yeah, that they would have ended up in that position. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, you know, throughout all of this, you've spoken about how you've gotten uh, like sponsorships from Office Works and all the like. So, and even Southern Cross Media. So, yeah, you know, we get free advertising on Triple M and Hits Mackay with Sundays, Channel Ten. We're so so grateful. Really? Yeah, that's like that's fantastic to get the yeah. word out because it can be difficult to find the help. You when know, you Ari, <laughs> we started with a $50 Woolworths gift card from the manager at the time at our local Woolies, mm. and Pete and I stood there in the foyer every Sunday doing sausage sizzles with that $50 gift card he would give us. That's how we started. Wow. And we still bake cupcakes, make caramel slice, mm. and sell them because that way we can engage with the community and so many people come up and ask for help while we're at our doing our fundraisers. Wow. Well, you know, you've been there so consistently would be absolutely great. And yeah, I can imagine it, you can do it covertly as well. You know, you're just coming up for some uh, good food. That's it. <laughs> one, one woman actually discreetly went and spoke to one of our lovely volunteers and mm-hmm. committee members the other week. And um, she said, my mum and dad are just there. 
but I need help and was able to assist her. So, you know, it's so important. Yeah. It's being on the ground, communicating with the public about their needs, their, you know, even raising awareness. Uh, we're, We're lucky to be at Legends of the Lawn every year. We're so lucky to go to that concert. We've been there two years in a row now. And Josh, the organiser, said we're back next year. So we're there amongst a lot of people. Mm. And the amount of conversations that opened up just at this last event was incredible. So Mm. it's so important for us to be out there in the public eye. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, you know, just hearing that Broken Ballerina has formed such a strong uh, relationship with the community. Could you talk a bit more about just how important community is to survivors? Oh, it's so important to feel like they're supported. Mm. And for the community, if you know someone that's been through it, be kind, be mindful that they're exhausted. I'm so, so determined to keep on using Mm. my voice to whoever will listen to me. To basically be that To be that person or group that you know, would have been great to have if for yourself. Yes, and I, I would like to see an overhaul of the a thorough inquiry into mm. even the way that public mental health systems run in our country. Mm, absolutely, that, that's my the ultimate dream would be to see a complete modernisation of oh yeah the mental health system and that judicial system. Mm. It would be great if they took more of a community-based approach yeah, as opposed to a, what would you put it? I call it a textbook approach from the 1880s (laughs) where they had the old leather textbooks. I think some of them are still going off those. (laughs) Um, Our raising awareness is very unique. We've got a brand. We're very, very outspoken about domestic violence, sexual assault, Mm. and um, we use our fundraisers the radio, the airtime that we get, mm. we you know, I often will be on air talking about domestic violence. Mm. And um, and I've even been into a high school and spoke, well, two now, and spoken to students about domestic violence, which is another area that I would really like to expand on mm. in the future. Wow. So we do do a lot. Even our cars got um, <laughs> don't be silent about domestic violence on the back. We work with police. Like mm. police can contact Broken Ballerina after hours mm. and we get a motel for a victim and we'll take gift cards because they need money for food. And mm. we're the only organisation in town that are open after hours that police can, wow. so- um, you know, reach out to. Yeah, as you mentioned before, there's a lady who didn't realise she was in an abusive relationship for 25 years mm. because possibly didn't you know come across as that because you think domestic violence, you think physical violence, not coercive control or emotional. That's so, right, and I think that's it. It's not just black eyes. Mm. It's it's a lot of the abuse I went through with my former husband of 15 years was um, the put downs in public, mm. the jokes wrapped in. The truth wrapped in jokes, the digs at me wrapped in jokes, mm. the the gritting his teeth and, and swearing at me while smiling at a room full of people. It was like a mm. ventriloquist, you know, squeezing my leg under the table and yeah. whispering horrible things in my ear while smiling at the room and um, so the all... controlling behaviour of I couldn't go here and I couldn't yeah. go there, but 
he was allowed to go away with a um, 1% bike club on a three-day trip away or a week away and but I wasn't allowed to go and have drinks with my girlfriends at the local mm. nightclub, you know. All that sort of coercive control and those behaviours. He, he used to say to me, but I didn't hit you. Yeah, and that's where it often becomes really difficult, especially if that's been the only form of the abuse in the relationship. You know, How do you convince people on the outside that that's the case? But opening up that conversation for teenagers. Oh, it's so important. And I'm seeing, uh, I've got a teenager, we've mm. got a 16-year-old, and he he talks about some of the behaviours of, like he's had girlfriends that have, you know, made him download, the add, add her to the, you know, that Life360. Uh, yep, yep. Um, insisted on it and then ringing him going, why are you there and what are you doing? Mm. And and he recognised that was controlling behaviour and yeah. got rid of that. It was like, Mum... That's controlling. That's and I'm really proud that that our son is able to recognise those behaviours. Mm. But unfortunately, there's still a lot going on with yeah. this next up and coming generation. It's actually scary. Some of the stuff I've heard and oh, and witnessed, and that shows there's still a long way to go. Mm, and it starts in the home. It starts in the schools. It starts when they're young. Well, I do think it's fantastic that you are taking that subject to teenagers, you know, and it may not just be for them to be aware for themselves, but for them to look at a friend and go, um, you know, noticing this sort of behaviour or, you know, just that awareness. It's, uh, how would you put it, prevention rather than a reaction. Yes. So, well, we'll have to wrap this up, but is there anything you'd like to add on to that we've spoken about or...? I just think everyone can do their part when it comes to these things. Mm. Don't enable. If you've got a son or daughter that is an abusive person, hold them accountable for it. Don't Mm. side with them because you gave birth to them, for goodness sakes. Mm. I see too many mums and dads in the courthouse siding with their perpetrator, usually son, because it is usually the males that are, uh, you know, the statistics don't lie. Yeah. and it's like they should be supporting victims and encouraging better behaviour from their child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking, you know? Having that parental responsibility. Yeah. And if, if you are a perpetrator, look in the mirror and, mm. and realise you can change. If, you, if you're in an abusive relationship, know that you don't deserve that and mm. that there are ways that you can get out. Absolutely. And, you know, there's organisations like yours, like Broken Ballerina, that will reach out and treat like a person, not a not a box. <laughs> yeah, not a, not a tick and flick on yeah, a box. That's exactly. right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for um, joining us for this episode. And yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me, Ari. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this critical conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or YouTube. And if you would like to keep up with us outside of the podcast, feel free to follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Critical Conversations, the number 4, SW, all in one word. We look forward to you joining us next week.